All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? And how do you get it? I'm your host, Jeff Coulard. Welcome to the show. A realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Okay, welcome to another episode of Powerful, the live show. Um, I'm really excited about today's guest. She's someone that I met a couple of years ago down in Boulder, Colorado, while taking a, a right use of power training with the Right Use of Power Institute. Uh, her name is Regina Smith, and she is um, she's a trainer, a speaker, a coach. Um, she's got a master's degree in contemplative psycho- psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology. She works at Naropa University as the executive director of Mission Integration and Student Affairs. And she's the founder of Evolving Dynamics, a company that's dedicated to exploring power dynamics in organizations and communities and helping those organizations and communities better connect with and use their power to serve the people um, that they're there to serve. Um, So we're going to have a wide ranging conversation about all things status power, all things I guess just power in general. It's going to be a great conversation. I've I've tons of no pressure, Regina. But welcome to the show. We are going to um, yeah, we're just going to explore some topics I think that are near and dear to both of our hearts, which is which is power. So welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, any chance that I get to to pick your brain about some of these issues and to chat through through power, um, it, it's a passion of mine. It has been for a couple of years ever since I was introduced to the framework around probably 2015 or so. Um, so I don't know when you kind of came into the, the right use of power. Um, actually, when did you discover right use of power and how did that? Like time, <laughs> time was weird before the pandemic and it's definitely weird now. So I don't know what year it was. I would have to imagine um, before I had, you know, there's before I had a child and then there's since I've had a child. So I want to say it was probably like, Zen was born. He he has birthday this week. So Zen was born four years ago. So it's probably five or six years ago. Okay. So probably that, right on the same window. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a four-year-old. Is he turning four or is he four? He'll be turning five on Wednesday. Turning five. You're here. You're, you're a year ahead of my youngest uh, Hudson. He's turning four here next oh. week uh, on Wednesday as well, November 25th. So um, that's fun. Um, he's the third. So I, I actually have no recollection of pre-kids because my oldest is nine now. And so that's like a decade ago. Wow. That's a long time ago. Um, why don't, well, actually, well, I'll remind the listeners that this is a live show. And so those of that are tuning in live, feel free to ask us questions, make comments. If there's anything that you're curious about, by all means, just type them into the comment box. If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, just like type them in and we'll, we'll try and answer them if they're questions or we'll throw them up on the screen if there's a comment uh, that you want to, that you want to share with us. So don't hesitate to do that. Um, why don't you give us just the the kind of the Coles notes of how you found yourself doing this type of work, which is we'll dig into the work, I'm sure, as we go. Um, but what was the journey like to get to this point um, in your in your career? And maybe like a little punctuation mark. I gave like a very s- small snippet, uh, which does not do, I'm sure, what you do justice. And so maybe you could fill us in a little bit. Mm-hmm. 
Let's see. Well, in terms of looking at power more closely and professionally and helping others to, to navigate power, um, there's definitely threads throughout my life. I think when a person grows up in an underrepresented group culturally, you find yourself in a lot of conversations about power, whether or not those conversations are explicitly talking about power or power is the implicit conversation or the dynamics that you're negotiating through the interactions. Um, so when I look back, I recognize a lot of this work earlier, um, you know, clubs and organizations that I participated in in high school, um, things like that, things I did in college also that were um, like being a part of the Black Student Union and holding leadership in that organization. Um, but most recently, I came to Naropa to get my second master's degree. My first one was in poetry, and this one in contemplative psychotherapy and Buddhist psychology at a Buddhist-inspired institution in Boulder, Colorado, and just loved, loved, loved the content, the curriculum, and found it so life-changing and paradigm-shifting. But what I did notice is that there weren't many Black folks at the institution in my classrooms and that my faculty didn't seem very conversant or comfortable in conversations around identity and power. And so I felt a calling to try to help a more, help Naropa become more diverse and inclusive so that these teachings would be more accessible to folks from underrepresented backgrounds. And so I started to shift my focus more explicitly to diversity and inclusion and the work we now call, you know, JEDI or justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, along the way, I did some training, uh, psychotherapeutic training in Hakomi, which is a modality that Cedar Barstow, the found Dr. Cedar Barstow, the founder of the Right Use of Power Institute um, was trained in. And so she came into that training I was doing and um, talked to us about power and she focused particularly on role power. And I saw this as a framework that could be a gateway for conversations about what she calls status power or the power, the unearned power of belonging to particular cultural groups. Um, so that's a snippet of how I came to this work. Okay. What, yeah. What resonated the most about it when, cause you mentioned that it kind of, it really started to resonate. What was, do you remember what it was particularly? Yeah, what I noticed is that the conversations that I was participating in and the conversations that I was leading were coming from this paradigm of using language of power, privilege, and oppression, um, but specifically privilege and oppression and really focusing on white privilege was uh, a leading kind of heading in the work. And what I noticed is that people really couldn't even get in the room to, to have the conversation because the language was so off-putting and folks were so focused on, you know, being wrong, uh, rather than the idea that power is neutral, that we all have power, especially personal power, that's our birthright, and that we can use any kind of power, including privilege, effectively and to the benefit of others, if we are skillful and willing to cultivate certain practices and frames of mind around our power. And so I saw that as an opportunity to really get people 
to to engage in the conversation rather than running from the language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've I think I've probably noticed similar things. And one of the things that I often do is I'll just ask people like power, like tell me about power, and is it something that you lean away from? And I do a lot of my work in the helping professions, and it seems like there's a little bit of a default that you know we see power abuses, we see misuses of power, and so we have like a negative reaction to it. And so to be told that you have a bunch of power. Maybe for some people when you don't feel it, right? And you don't necessarily see it in the same way because you've grown up with it and you've lived with it. Like status power is a really interesting one. You know, I tick all the boxes for status power, if we're being honest. Like it's like I I have a ton of it, you know, my my gender, my ethnicity, my education, English speaking, you know, middle class, where I live, like lots, lots and lots of status power. We can dig into that later in the show, you know, around how to, how do we best come to maybe a, a relationship with our power, I think is one of the things that struck me when I took the, the training and started to dig into right use of powers that we are all have a unique kind of wiring around how we understand our power, how we've experienced power in the past is going to influence how we show up with it, right? And our and how we then operationalize it in our, in our roles. Um, and yeah, so there's a few things you mentioned. One that stands out for me is privilege um, as a type of power. What are your what, what's off-putting about privilege? Do you think, or what would have what's been some of the response when you when we used to maybe lead with privilege and you've switched to leading with you know, status power in that conversation? Yeah, I'm not sure if this is true of Canadian culture, but uh, United States culture, um, there's what we call or what is called in social science as the myth of meritocracy, which is the idea that a lot of people have that they have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps that they have um, really fought for everything that they have in their lives. And therefore it's very threatening to start to imagine that there's anything in their life that is unearned. And so that is what is disturbing to people about privilege. The idea that some things were made easier or that they were afforded some benefits that they didn't earn. Um, And I think people, tend to, you know, be all or nothing thinkers. We're all socialized to be dualistic. So we think, well, if I, if there are things that I didn't earn, then maybe I didn't earn anything. And you don't know my story. You don't know how hard my parents worked, how hard I worked. And, and privilege isn't really about taking away someone's hard work, but it is saying that certain gates were left unlocked (laughs) for you to walk through that are not unlocked for other people and that there are barriers to um, opportunity for uh, underrepresented and marginalized groups in in your culture. Um, So privilege can be threatening because people also want to see themselves as good people. And so if I have been complicit in systems of oppression and systems that have harmed other human beings, if I've been ignorant to that and in some way benefited from that, then how can I be a good person? Um, So these are some of the things that folks, uh, that scare folks and intimidate folks and make them not want to have the conversation or take an honest look at how our culture is organized um, to benefit some and, you know, disadvantage others. Mm-hmm. So how do you start that conversation? You know, I've certainly been experimenting with it in different ways. Um, not, not as explicitly with status power, um, with a lot of the organizations, it's kind of a, 
you know, it, it comes down the road a little bit, but I imagine you're coming in on the front end with, with that conversation in, in a lot of ways around status power. How do you effectively open people to that conversation that when they might otherwise be closer? Maybe you can walk me through a little bit of like, we got, got an organization, they want to connect with their status power. They want to like power in general, but status in particular, they want to do some of the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion work in a real way, you know, want to like really dig into it. What are some of the first things that you would do with a group or with a leader um, to open up the door to that conversation? Well, I think part of it is uh, assessing the leadership and the organization to see where they are developmentally, um, because every organization is going to be at a different starting point and you need to attune the work that you're going to do with an organization to where they are. Uh, what kind of conversations have they already had? What is their culture like um, not about, around power in general, not just status power? Is it a culture of feedback? Is there is it a culture of trust or of distrust? And not that anything's black or white, but where on the spectrum are we? Um, is it a highly collaborative culture? Is it hierarchical? So just trying to get to know the organization and why do they want to engage in this work in the first place? And why do they want to have these conversations? Are there conflicts that have already occurred that they're wanting to work with? Or are they, you know, in an ideal world being proactive and setting some language and framework for the organization so that they're ready when conflict occurs? Um, because conflict as inevitable as my colleague, Dr. Amanda Aguilera often talks about, you know, if we have different beliefs and needs and expectations, if we have basically diversity, then we're going to have conflict because that's all conflict is, is different. It's working with difference. And so, um, so often it's just figuring out what kind of organization uh, I'm working with and their motivation for engagement and getting to know the leadership and what their outcomes are. What are they hoping for? If they could wave a magic wand after working with me, what is it that they'd like to um, see in terms of the organization's transformation? And I think success is an organization just has greater capacity to continue the conversations in my absence. You know, that they have figured out a language and a framework and some tools and strategies for continuing to have these conversations and for doing the work on their own. Um, and I think from a soul place, from a spirit place in terms of my compass guiding me with any organization is the idea that we spend so much time at work that we want it to be a place where we can feel nourished and thrive. Uh, ideally, everyone wants to be useful. Everyone wants to feel like their contribution matters. Um, and in this conversation, every opinion and every voice is necessary for creating a resilient community within an organization. So here's a chance for everyone to be um, on the same team, working toward the same goal, which is a, a culture of belonging. And if we take it as a, you know, organizations are micro examples of what's going on on the macro scale, um, you know, we're all in this together, whether we like it or not. There is one planet <laughs> um, and we have to figure out how we're going to work together to for to help the earth regenerate and to sustain life on the planet um, and to not, you know, to do as little harm to one another as we can. And if we want to go beyond that, to really create cultures 
where um, love and community are at the center. And the only way that's going to happen is if organization by organization, we learn how to be together. And so that's kind of my longer view of the work that we're doing. That's the the big V vision, big capital V kind of yeah. top of the top of the the dream board vision. Yeah, no, I, I love that, and I love this conversation about because there's a lot of noise. I do a lot of work with with organizations around communication training, leadership development, those types of things, and there's a lot of talk about psychological safety, about the ability to have those diverse perspectives at the table and for it to be safe enough to be yourself, right, and to take interpersonal risks. And I see this conversation happening in isolation of power, in isolation of particularly status power, but role power and personal power and these other things. And I'm like, how how is this possible? How is it possible to have a robust conversation about something like safety and belonging without layering in awareness about power and language about power and those types of things? Um, what, what, what's your, what are your thoughts on, or maybe what's, what's something that organizations are asking for when you ask them that question of if they could wave a magic wand after their, your work together, what are some of the answers to that? What's some of the driving forces behind um, the organizations that you're working with getting like bringing you on board for a bit to, to do some work? Um, what, what are they saying to that question? Um, there's a lot of different responses in general. Um Folks want to create more diverse organizations um, and aren't really sure how to create more diverse organizations where there are more underrepresented identities within the organization. And then they want to retain um, the members of their workforce that are underrepresented and make sure that those folks feel like they have uh, a place at the table. Um, They want to build empathy within the organization and a culture of caring and respect. They want to decrease conflict. Um, and they want to be, some organizations you know, explicitly want to be a force for good in their communities beyond their organization. Um, and a lot of folks, of course, after the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, this summer um, are having, having awakenings of, oh, there is a, you know, this is unjust. We have systems that are unjust that need to be, um, you know, re dismantled and rebuilt. Um, so I do think that there's a, a lot of the organizations that I work with have a sense of, yeah, conscience of wanting to be a positive contribution to a, a kind of global shift toward more compassion, more justice, and more solidarity. So those are, that's a widespread, but. Yeah, no, that's great. It, and it's all very heartening um, reasons, I think, to engage in the work. And, and it seems like, it seems like there has been a bit of a resurgence of that kind of ethic in some of the organizations that, that I'm involved with for sure. But just, I'm, I'm wondering, maybe this is a segue into the recent you know, from Black Lives Matter movement over the, the resurgence in the summer to the, the election that is still ongoing. It seems like it should be wrapped up by now. It seems like for a while there, us Canadians were like, what is going on down there? We're like, what is happening? I thought this is like, our elections are so dull and so boring mm-hmm. in comparison. Um, maybe we let's, 
let's segue a little bit into what's happening politically, what's happening societally, um, some of your observations or thinking around something like the Black Lives Matter movement and the polarization of politics in, in your country. I mean, we're certainly feeling it here in Alberta. There's some polarized politics happening. You know, we're not immune to it. I think it's just maybe not as, as amplified as maybe it is, um, or we just yeah, we don't crank the dial on it in quite the same way with our news media. I don't know what the difference is, but there's there's a there's a very big difference, I think, in in the political landscape and social landscape. Um, so that there's and there's no real question there. I don't think maybe I should formulate a question. Yeah, but general comments. General so comments are welcome. <laughs> and I'll remind the guests, the listeners, that you can enter your comments and questions as well. If you want me to ask something that I'm not asking, make sure you get it in the comment box. But um, maybe here's a question: Is is Black Lives Matter, is the movement making a difference, making it reasonable? Like, is it palpable? Is there a shift in the conscience of organizations and communities um, that you can feel or that you can, can talk to? Yeah, I mean, I think there's absolutely an impact. There has been, you know, um, since Black Lives Matter was formed. And I think the summer's protests um, yeah, it felt like a global earthquake in terms of even the shift I've seen in, in the media, uh, meaning like when I turn on Netflix, you know, it's not February and yet they're highlighting films by black people. And that, I don't know if I've ever seen that in my whole entire life. Usually you would get the black history month highlights, but now it's like, Oh, black people matter. 12 months out of the year, not just one month out of the year. And that might seem like a small thing, but representation matters. And the world that we see reflected back to us and the possibilities that we see for ourselves, I'm thinking particularly of our youth and our young folks, it matters. And, and the, you know, so I, I think that there's been a huge shift in terms of people's willingness to have this conversation people's, uh, especially like white people's uh, willingness to take responsibility for their education and for the ways in which they've been miseducated or undereducated. Um, so I think that it's had a profound impact. And in terms of like the polarization, and I think um, when I think about the United States, I think that that miseducation that I was just speaking to really is responsible for the polarization and divisiveness that we see. You know, race is a social construct and it was created for financial reasons, you know, for material gain of certain groups of people. Um, and I think that the idea and the mentality that we have of scarcity that if some people are doing well, that means that other people have to be doing poorly or that we can only do well at the expense of others, that there's not enough resource to go around, which given the way the, you know, that we are structured, that's true. Um, but we don't have to be structured that way. Um, and as long as we're um, preoccupied and distracted by pointing the finger at one another, we're not going to be paying attention to the systems that are creating 
the fear and the sense of scarcity that make us think that we have to demonize and vilify other human beings. And so everyone, I believe, uh, from a spiritual perspective, is wants to be happy and free from suffering, to use Buddhist language. Um, however, we're all sold a, you know, a particular way that we have to be in order to be happy and free from suffering, which means we have to turn against other other people and the planet in order to get the little bit there is. Um, and this is an unsustainable way of living and it creates violence and hostility and the political divisiveness that we see now. Um, and I, I, I'm only ho I'm hoping that the waking up that's happening is really shifting folks into looking at other ways to be powerful and looking at other ways to access resources and demanding systemic change. Um, but I, I know we're not quite there yet. You know, when we look at the voting that took place in the United States, the country is deeply split. Uh, in terms of candidates who espouse very distinct uh, values. And yeah, I find that heartbreaking. Yeah. And yeah, certainly not the only one there's, you know, when I look at, I couldn't believe it on election night. And I was like, how does Trump have 70 million votes or 60 million, 65, 70? I'm like, how does 70 million people vote for somebody who, like like you said, espouses a certain set of values that are so incongruent with with mine anyway, and with the world that I want my my kids to inhabit. It was very, um, yeah, heartbreaking. I think is probably the the word. And well, to me, it just like showed how afraid people are hmm. of each other and of losing of of losing of just being on the losing, whatever the losing side is, you know? And we had a president who really very clearly, you know, said winners are these people and losers are these people. And if you're a winner, you believe these things and you say these things. And he made a promise, you know, to folks who were particularly scared of losing their country, <laughs> you know? And he said, I'm going to give you back these values, this old, this traditional way, you know, traditional racist, you know, like old way of being, but I'm going to protect you. I'm going to take care of you. I'll make sure that you don't lose your job. I'll make sure that, you know, and it was right after we had, um, you know, a multiracial black president. So that scared the bleepers out of a lot of people. And they were like, they really are losing their country. So to me, it makes sense. That doesn't mean it's not heartbreaking. And it doesn't mean I agree. It just no. means like oh. I can understand the humanity that would motivate people. Yeah. I mean, we know that fear is a powerful motivator and we know that risk aversion, like loss aversion is, is more powerful often than hope for gain, right? We'll conserve what we have. We'll protect what we have before we'll often risk it or gamble it for something could be bigger and better, but we don't really know, right? The uncertainty of that. And uh, we don't do well with uncertainty, I think, generally speaking. Um, 
yeah, you mentioned something about violence that was interesting. Um, cause I, I, a lot of my work is, is also the sort of kind of right use of power as a framework for sure that it has influenced a lot of my work and did when I was working in addictions and now has kind of followed me into the other work I do. Um, compassionate communication, uh, by Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, his framework around, uh, nonviolent communication and a definition that he's gotten there that's really stuck with me in that violence is, is meeting your needs at the expense of somebody else's. Mm. Right. Like I'm going to meet my needs and you're, I'm getting, and my doing that is going to keep you from meeting your needs is essentially like the, the distillation of violence. And we often don't think of violence that way. We think of headline violence, right? The, the graphic front page violence. Um, but when you put it in that language and you distill it down to that, you know, there's violence everywhere. Right. And, and I've kind of, when I take those two frameworks, when I take right use of power and I take power as a concept and violence as a concept, I wonder if it's impossible to commit violence without power. Like we kind of have to have power to, to be violent, right. To, to take away from other people meeting their needs. And so, um, and I think maybe that's going back to where we first started the conversation around some people leaning away from power a little bit, having a bit of a negative bias towards power is because power, we can commit violence with power. And we often do. And I often do. I'm totally guilty of it. I'm sure my kids in a few years are going to be able to very clearly articulate how dad misuses his power on a frequent basis on Friday nights at 830 when they should be in bed and they're not. Right. How do we, or what's, what's one way to rehabilitate power for people? And what's one way that you've explored people or help people explore their own, you know, personal status or role power, but just kind of rehabilitating someone's relationship with power if they've got a bit of a negative bias towards it or a fear of power because it's been rooted in maybe violence in the past or in oppression um, for them. Is there any, any particular questions you like to ask people or activities you like to walk people through to, I guess, get a clearer picture or understanding of, of their power? Hmm. Well, I mean, part of the, work that I have been doing with my colleague that I mentioned, Amanda Aguilera, as we talked about, um, we were working with people to really understand um, their need to take care of themselves and to make sure that they are doing everything in their power to be in a good place so that they then have enough to engage in the work of justice. So um, one of the things that I do when I lead workshops and work with groups is, um, you know, a lot of what we call in the psychological world of resourcing, of like, let's take some time in the here and now to really fill up your tank with goodness. So I'll have people in pairs talk about what they love, like literally just list all of the things that you love and check how you feel before you do it and check how you feel after you do it. And what people will notice, of course, is that they feel they're in such a different mind frame, both from having talked about what they love, but also from the contact of having been with someone who's talking about what they love. So, you know, Billie Holiday says, uh, said, you have to have a little love in your life and some food on your table before you can sit still for any damn body sermon on how to behave. Like no one's going to sit and talk about social justice or talk about their privilege 
if they're deprived in some some really deep way. Now, you can use that to bypass and feel like you're never going to have enough to do this work. And that's a particular developmental place. And there's work to be done there. But generally, you know, if you're uh, well-intentioned and you're really uh, ready to do the work, you do need to make sure that you have slept, that you're, you've eaten, that you've had some cuddling, you know, all of the things, the little things that can help you to be in a good place. So that is cultivating your personal power so that you can then access your capacity to do the more difficult work of working with, you know, especially where you have up power. Um, So that's one of the things that I guide people towards. Um, And then also, you know, when I reflect on this idea of violence and how you need to have power to do violence and the idea of um, if you, you know, try to meet your needs at the expense of others, I think that can get a little tricky too, depending on your identity, um, because historically certain groups have been denied the ability to meet their own needs. And so um, I think that there's an edge there in the work of making sure that you're taking into account the historical context of um, violence. I'm going to mute as my child is here, but I'm still present and listening. <laughs> All good. Um, I'll remind the audience to feel like, feel free to drop a question in uh, if, if there's something that intrigues you or you want to chat about. Um, yeah, I think, and maybe, maybe we could talk a little bit about that intersection of personal role and status power and the benefits in separating them and the benefits in being able to tease them apart because a lot of times they get really kind of wrapped up. And I notice in myself, they get wrapped up and I don't know from where I'm operating or where I'm having my impact or my influence. Is it Jeff as a person? And like you say, identity is a really strong thing, right? And we identify as being good people and, you know, our intention is not to do harm. And yet sometimes we do. And so that intention impact gap, I think, is something um, that, that creeps in. I know for me, I'm, I'm constantly trying to cultivate an awareness of the impact, like the real impact I'm having, not the, the impact I think I'm having or want to have or want to hide behind, you know, good intentions. Um, but maybe you can tease apart for folks the, the differences between personal role and status power and maybe how they sometimes intersect or how you help people kind of distinguish them from each other. Because there, for me, there's been a lot of value in that um, exercise. Sure. So personal power is our birthright. Everyone's born with it. Our gifts, our skills, our abilities. Um, You know, an infant has power because it's the ability to influence those around us and our environment. And anyone who's heard an infant cry can instantaneously experience their power. And role power being power that's assigned. And we tend to think of it as earned. Uh, But this is when it gets a little blurry. Um, Even personal power is blurry because kind of what we think of as powerful is still is still influenced by our culture. Like if you're assertive or if you're, you know, intellectual, those are personal power attributes. But in different cultures, they're seen different ways. Um, So role power, temporary, 
uh, assigned or earned. So our job or position is typically what we think of. Status power comes from belonging to a group that's attributed power in a culture. So, you know, in the U.S. American culture, you know, up status identities are whiteness and maleness and uh, being cisgender and being, you know, able-bodied and so on. Um, and so, and then there's also collective power. Um, so the power of a group of individuals to kind of become more than the sum of their parts, the synergy that comes from being in a group. And there's also systemic power. So the way that systems operate to, um, you know, to put keep certain groups in power and deny other groups over time across institutions. Um, so all of those different types of powers that exist, and it's helpful to notice which, which, what kind of power is operating in a, or is they're always operating all the time, but is like front and center in a particular interaction, um, and which kind of power is. Um, contributing to whatever dynamic we're engaged in and that to see how the different types of power influence one another. Um, so I was often given credit for having a lot of personal power and I had that experience myself and it was a little confusing for a while of why I felt like I had a lot of power when I have identities that are historically oppressed. And over time, as I studied it, I began to realize that navigating um, systemic oppression, navigating uh, systems of power, navigating having down status identities created a, the need for a lot of resilience and the need for a lot of determination. And it created a closer relationship between me and my spiritual path. And it created empathy and compassion and all of these attributes that we attribute to personal power. And I realized that it was, you know, because of having down status identity that I had cultivated a, a deep reservoir of personal power. And unfortunately, sometimes we do see um, the kind of inverse of that, which is that folks who have been afforded a lot of things that they didn't have to work as hard for might find it more difficult to really have some of the, you know, fruition of, you know, of, of that um, navigating adversity. Um, and so we'll have to work harder later in life to develop some of their personal power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting total aside, I interviewed a friend a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Margo, and she's an author and an ice climber and a recovering addict. And she was, uh, you know, in jail and, you know, drug dealing and addicted for a good chunk of her life. And we were having a conversation about, she said, the skills I gained from my traumatic childhood are really coming in handy during a pandemic and, and mm -hmm. the stress and the collective trauma that is being inflicted upon us now. She's like, I've got all the coping mechanisms I need. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I said that my first kind of address to the university, uh, you know, after the initial um, lockdown, so to speak, was I am grateful for every time life was kicking my butt and I had to fall to my knees. 
um, because yeah, I know what it's like and I'm not, you know, I, I do have a toolkit um, and a lot of folks I'm in recovery and a lot of folks who are in recovery are saying the same thing. Like, thank God we've had to develop all of these life skills about how to navigate uh, difficulty. Let's talk, you've mentioned up and down power a couple of times or up and down status. Maybe we should kind of define those for people who are listening that aren't familiar with the frameworks. We've outlined a few of the kind of types of power or where we can get our power from. What's what's up and down power? And I'm going to let my dog out quickly because he's scratching at the door. Okay. Maybe you can uh, run with that question. Sure. Um, so yeah, we've mentioned that, for example, if we look at status power or social power, that there are certain groups that are afforded power um, by their culture solely based on their membership in those groups. And so, as I mentioned, so up power in the area of status in the U.S. would be those identity groups that I mentioned, whiteness, maleness, being able-bodied, being neurotypical, being cisgender, being heterosexual, and then down power would be the groups that have been denied power or where there have been, they haven't been denied power because we have power, but where there's been barriers placed in our path in terms of accessing opportunity and where, um, you know, inequitable systems have been created. So. Mm-hmm. And how do you, because one of the things, and, and we're back to, um, maybe that conversation where we first started around kind of hyper individualism, I call it hyper individualism, but you mentioned, you know, people picking yourselves up by your bootstraps. And so I imagine that we often mistake people who have cultivated personal power because of adversity and we'll confuse that with them picking themselves up by their bootstraps. And it's just a reinforcement of a narrative around individual individuality and that there's no such thing as this because there's, you know, maybe there's a segue here into a question about all lives matter versus black lives matter. Maybe that's where this is headed is this like individualist narrative that um, gets reinforced sometimes by people that will pick out, you know, we'll pick out the Obamas or we'll pick out the, you know, the athletes or the, the, the successful marginalized people. We'll say, see if they can do it, everybody can do it. It it has nothing to do with your circumstances. It's your attitude and your discipline and, you know, pick an attribute that the system will identify as being important and will kind of deny that power is a part of the equation. Um, thoughts or thoughts around that. I don't know if there's a, a great question in there. But. <laughs> thoughts around it. You know, I, I no longer have in-depth conversations with people who don't um, believe that oppression exists. There's, there's plenty, there's, you know, large bodies of research there's books, there's statistics um, in terms of health outcomes, education outcomes, the, the income, the gap in income um, between these populations. There's, yeah, wonderful, wonderful scholars, you know, like Ibram Kendi, who has written Stamp from the Beginning, who show the entire history of, um, you know, racist ideology and how it came to exist. And so that's not, my work is not to redo or even summarize the work that's already been done. So yeah, so if someone were to try to engage me in such a conversation, I'd probably be like, oh. 
It sounds like a you problem. Yeah, not a me. Totally. Yeah. It's just not. It's no longer necessary for us to have that level of conversation. Yeah, and and the work that you're doing is very much like you say in the ideally with organizations and people and communities that are being proactive around this conversation and see see the growth that they have and see the potential. Yeah, I mean, I think that everyone has their own um, part in the conversation. And so there are folks who are probably gifted at having that earlier part of the conversation. And then hopefully if we imagine it like a relay race, you know, they get an organization or a group of people to a certain place where they pass the baton to me, where what I offer and what I do is a great match for where that person or that group or that organization is developmentally. So, you know, so not every organization is a good match for me. Not every client's a good match for me. Um, it's really about who's in a good position to, uh, you know, make the most benefit of what I have to offer and where I can be of the most service to their development. That's interesting because I'm starting to realize that in my own work, I used to think that I can just work with any group. And it's like, I actually don't want to work with any group. I want to work with a specific type of group and a specific type of leader. Um, how, how does an organization know that they're ready for this work? So you mentioned a few attributes, um, you know, collaboration being one of them kind of feedback, um, you know, cause des- desire is probably not enough. Like there probably needs to be some actual action or some qualities or attributes of, of what's happening. Um, what, I guess, what are some of those things that you're looking for? Maybe with a bit more, like let's, let's dig into like, if an organization wants to really engage in this work, what are some of those preconditions, those things that they really need to establish um, before they can do meaningful work? Cause I see a lot of, so you can think while I talk this through, um, mm-hmm. I come in on the heels often of diversity work that looks like a lunch and learn. It looks like let's invite someone from a marginalized community for a lunch hour and they can come in and they can do some slides and talk, you know, about their experience and they leave and like, it makes zero difference, like makes no difference to structures, systems, practices, leadership, like nothing has fundamentally shifted. There's a bit of awareness or there's been a little bit of education, which I'm not, not to dismiss it, but like, it's a slow, that's a slow road to do it a kind of lunch and learn style. Um, so what, what will you look for in an organization or what can organizations do to do this work more meaningfully? Yeah. Let me just check on my child one second. Absolutely. So a reminder that you can find all of these, um, all the different shows at jeffcoolart.com slash powerful. I've had lots of great conversations over the years um, or the last year or so with, um, with folks about power and leadership and life. And so you can, you can go here to find all the past episodes, the audio version. Um, you can also check it out on YouTube. All of the shows get recorded and, and they'll be up on YouTube for you to grab as well. So um, how's he doing? Is he, he's doing okay? Yeah. I'm keeping his mom occupied for. We're having quite a multiple long. snack moments. Nice. <laughs> So, yeah, back to your question in terms of like, what does an organization need in order to be ready? Um, I mean, it's really basic. I think it's a willingness, um, an understanding that it's going to be uncomfortable. Um, So a willingness to go into that discomfort. Um, I think lunch and learn, any any efforts are, are efforts, 
even if, um, yeah, I, organizational change is very slow. Um, you know, five, six years ago when I started doing this work at, at Naropa, you know, and I had the hubris of youth, I was like, oh, like, I was like, I don't understand why it's so difficult to change an organization's culture. You just go in, you do this, you do that, you, you know, I'm going to come in and do it differently than anyone else who's ever come before. Um, and then I realized, oh, yeah, I uh, had to make a lot of mistakes in order to really just humble myself and realize that change is slow and it's difficult. And mm -hmm. Can I pause? Slow work is good work. What'd you say? Well, I, was, I was about to ask if we could dig into some of those mistakes or the ones that stand out the most for you. Um, some of those mistakes, I'm trying to think, besides just my general idea that like I was going to come in and fix everything, that, you know, people just didn't know what I knew. Um, Yeah, not celebrating the victories of just small changes, not really seeing people's efforts. Um, also overworking myself, like doing work that was not mine to do. Like we just talked about the whole like convincing people oppression, just putting my energy and not being able to see where people were developmentally, not understanding a developmental path, um, putting as much energy into someone who's nowhere near ready to do this work as someone who just needs, you know, a little support. So really not being able to discern where a good investment of time and energy is. Um, so those were some of the, the mistakes. So they were thinking it was all on me that I was going to be this super special hyper individualist rather than how can I distribute this work among a team or a collective and also how do you hold key stakeholders responsible for their peace rather than trying to do the work for them. Um, so a lot of discernment. And I think the more I work on my own liberation, the better I get at the work. So also the parallel process that's inevitable in doing this kind of work around power in general, but it's, you know, and then there's a particular flavor to status power. So I think if an organization is willing to invest time, energy, and resource, um, and where upper leadership is willing to do the actual work on themselves intrapersonally, um, where they're willing to change, yeah, willing to do like a parallel of changing inner systems within oneself and outer systems within the organization. Um, that's really, it, it really is just work, like a workability, an openness, a flexibility, a sense of humor. You know, you want to take it seriously, but you also need to have some playfulness and some fun and some humor. Um, and an organization whose values are already aligned with a more just and beautiful world. Um, because, yeah, you got to be rowing in the same direction. Um, otherwise, if you're just doing it because of the optics or you're just doing it because uh, you don't really know why you just think you should because everybody else is doing it kind of thing, um, 
Yeah, I'm still willing to come in and have some conversations, but there's probably not going to be institutional transformation. And I think for me, being able to discern what the organization, like, do they just want to have some conversations or do they do they want institutional transformation? And those are different conversations and different projects. And I can, I and, and my colleagues that I work with uh, can do both. Right now I'm working with this great group of friends and colleagues that, that I really love. We're called the Center for Radical Connection. And, um, you know, I'll go anywhere and do anything with them. So Center for Radical Connection. I love that. I'll have to, I'll have to learn more. Um, I'll have to dig into that. Um, I don't want to keep you too long. We'll, we'll kind of, I got another question or two and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, Cause I know you've got, uh, you've got some mumming to do and I've got some dadding to do probably. I've got the, a bit of that. So um, I love what you you mentioned about the, the parallel process and not working harder than, than the other, than the people that you're there for, to support. It's very resonant for me from my time in addictions treatment, where that was like, we had to hold that because when you talk about burnout, when you talk about working too hard, when you talk, all those things resonate with me so deeply because that was, that's the journey in addictions treatment is, is being able to be there with people, but not burn yourself out and not work harder. And the parallel process piece, like there's so much of that that happens when you realize that, that, and maybe there is, maybe there's an interesting thread that I haven't connected before. It's been in the background between addiction and the work of addiction and the work of transformation. Cause it's not that different. Like addiction is just an entrenchment and a set of patterns and behaviors that are holding us back. Right. And, and harming us and other people in a lot of ways isn't that different than misuses and abuses of power and being stuck in those patterns, right? And in those behaviors. Yeah, Amanda's been doing a lot of thinking about that um, in terms of being kind of addicted to whiteness mm-hmm. um, and what that looks like for white folks. And definitely I see parallels. Um, I see a lot of parallels. And as someone who has, you know, been in recovery, I... Um, yeah, there's a lot of conversations around power that happen in uh, recovery communities, and um, and where do you get your power from, and when are you able to admit powerlessness, and um, the power that comes from service work, um, and all of these things I think are very applicable to a journey of transformation um, and a racial awakening. Uh, or awakening to status power, I think has a lot of, a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something to dig into. There's always, there's always more. It's one of those things. Power is one of those things that you, you crack the door open to it and you start to see it everywhere and you start Absolutely. to see the threads and the connections. So, um, well, I want to thank you a lot. You know, I'm very grateful for the time that you spent, um, with me tonight in the audience and whoever listens to this after the fact is evolving dynamics the best place for people to actually i would say um a really like i am uh you can follow me on instagram at divinity revealed and you can find me on facebook at the same place divinity revealed and at the moment i'm focusing on my work with the center for radical connection and also just my individual coaching and consulting work um so it's best to look me up on the gram or on Facebook for further connection. 
Awesome. I'll make sure that there are links to all of those locations for, so that people can can track you down on the internet and find find you and connect with you and learn more about the work and follow along with this conversation about about power and status power and how we can transform organizations. And uh, again, thank you so much for joining me. And we will uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me.